Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Emily and welcome to Shortcuts. Uh, this week we have Tula Drummonis, journalist, opinion columnist and author. Welcome, Tula. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today on the show, we'll be having a pop quiz on the Quebec election. And we'll be talking about a rupture, maybe, or a conversation about the CBC's journalistic standards and practices. I'm Emilie Nicola, in for Jesse Brown this week. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Nicholas Hominski, Glenn Visevic, Marcus Peterson, Jen McRae, Paul Silvestre, Adam Locke, Becca Barker, and Jasmine. Hi, my name is Jasmine, and I'm a student at McGill University in Montreal, and I'm also a line cook. I love Canada Land because you guys have helped teach me to pay more attention and question the information I'm internalizing from the media. In Quebec tonight, Francois Legault handily won the provincial election. Legault is promising to cut income taxes and help Quebecers deal with the high cost of living. He's also vowing to get more power for Quebec from Ottawa, to protect the French language and to limit immigration. So, Tula, on Monday night, you watched what happened, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes. I, yes. I mean, we were both working that night, so uh, I was watching the results roll in along with everybody else. Yeah. So on Monday night in Quebec, the CAQ won a landslide uh, victory in the provincial election. The party won 90 out of uh, 125 seats, which was quite the sweep. I just wanted to maybe just ask you what was your first reaction to the CAC's victory uh, on Monday night? I mean, my initial reaction, and I believe most people's reaction was, 
it was it was already declared, you know, in 11 minutes. That was like the shortest election night most of us have ever seen. We knew going in, you know, there was already a 99% chance that the CQ was uh, mm-hmm. was coming in with an, a majority. We knew that. So it was kind of like going into election night, waiting to see who would be official opposition because, you know, the, those were the, the seats that were really up for grabs. But I don't think anyone expected that it would be this quick. And this much of a resounding majority. I mean, anyone who reads me knows that I wasn't necessarily overwhelmingly pleased by the results. I don't, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm not a huge CAQ supporter. I feel like there are a lot of issues that are problematic with this government. And there were definitely a lot of issues that were problematic about their campaign. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so so just so people who haven't followed, as we just said, the CQ has 90 seats. There's 125 seats at the National Assembly, 21 for the Liberals, 11 for Quebec Solidaire, 3 for the Parti Québécois, and the Conservative Party, the new Conservative Party of Quebec, who was very present during the campaign, um, ended up with a significant portion of the popular vote, but with uh, zero seats. So they're not going to be at the National Assembly. And you're right, the campaign was controversial in many ways, especially, I think, uh, some of the declarations that Legault did on immigration, Mm -hmm. and that created a lot of debates and a lot of hurt. Yes. Especially people in the Montreal region, but just more generally people who uh, are either have an immigrant background or just care about people who have an immigrant background were hurt about some of the things that François Legault had said and then apologize for and then say again and mm-hmm. then apologize for and then say again during the campaign <laughs> on immigration. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the last four years as far as I'm concerned yeah. about the CAC. They always kind of cross that line and then they always backtrack when they get the backlash and you're never quite sure about how much of it they mean and how much is just a strategy, you know, to kind of gain more votes. But it's deeply problematic because in their quest for total domination or to win this majority, I feel it was in many respects a strategic move to do some of these and to say some of these things. But there are consequences to this kind of conversation and this kind of debate and this kind of public discourse. And right now, we have, as you just said, a large swath of population that feels very targeted, very marginalized, and with some extremely unfair and untrue statements, you know, by the immigration minister. So I think he's got a lot of work to repair that. He may have, you know, gave his speech on Monday night saying that he will be premier for all Quebecers, but, but that remains to be seen. When I say that Quebecers form a great nation, I mean all Quebecers from all regions of all ages of all origins, I'm going to be the premier of all Quebecers. What he said Monday night saying that, you know, and said it in both languages, right, in French and English, (laughs) saying that he's going to be premier of all Quebecers. He repeated it twice and he said it again on Tuesday morning. It would have been welcomed differently or people would have received it differently if it wasn't for the controversial bills of the last four years and and basically a lot of things that happened during his first mandate um, that I think people have made their minds already aware where the CEQ stands on on the kind of nationalism that, that they want to promote. But today... (laughs) <laughs> because we could go, I feel like the both of us could like <laughs> rant and talk about Quebec politics. Absolutely. Today we wanted to do something a little bit differently because you and I are so, I mean, deeply embedded in covering and commenting this election. So we wanted to take a step back and look at the bigger picture, given that there is a lot of people at Canada Land who are not obviously uh, in Quebec and don't necessarily follow 
what's been going on and have, you know, very Quebec 101 questions about what's <laughs> been happening or just to understand the place. So we did this little exercise when we asked both, you know, people inside the team of Canada Land who are based, you know, across the country and as well some of our listeners, what questions they had in trying to understand this election and just the political climate in Quebec in general. And this is very much a safe space where we just take people from where they are. So we're going to go into it and and we're going to take it from there. Are you ready? Best as I am. Yeah, sure. Well, let's try. So one question says, I saw this TikTok and the TikTok is basically uh, zooming in on this very blue map of Quebec to find the red and orange in Montreal. And so the person says, I saw this TikTok and was curious as to how the elections have changed over the years. Has it always been this blue outside of the city and why? Mm. I mean, I think there's always been a divide between Montreal and the rest of Quebec. I think that is not necessarily new. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's unique to Quebec either. There's always been, you know, the divide between uh, the urban versus rural uh, voters. But I do believe during this election, I think it was more pronounced. Absolutely. And and just to complete what you said, uh, I, just, I did a little bit of research in the last days because, I mean, the CQ is a new party, right? Mm-hmm. It's only formed government for the first time in, in 2018 for the Legault's first mandate. And before that, when the Liberals and the Basque Quebecois were dominating Quebec politics, they could only form majorities by having quite a bit of representation on the Montreal island. Mm-hmm. And I looked back even you know, before that, and I realized that even when Maurice uh, Duplessis, the, the infamous, you know, Union Nationale premier who dominated Quebec politics in the 40s and the 50s, when he was premier, he also had more uh, representation in Montreal than Legault has now. Interesting. François Legault only has two writings in Montreal, and there were fewer writings in total back then and fewer writing in Montreal. And Maurice Duplessis managed to have more writings than that in Montreal, especially on the east side. So there is, of course, what you're saying is true that there is like uh, the rural urban divide is new, but I think it's fair to say that it's darker than ever before. There is a pathway to majority that that excludes, that doesn't need Montreal. And I feel like it has had quite the impact on the policy agendas that have been put forward by this government in the last, in the last years. Absolutely. I think, and you know, this is my theory and take it for what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no denying, no matter how you feel about Lego and the CAQ, they have completely changed the political landscape in Quebec. And they've forced, you know, these mainstream, normally traditional parties that held on to power, like the Liberals and the PQ, to kind of, now they need to redefine themselves and they need to re, you know, brand themselves in a certain way, because those divides are very different. The next question that, that we had, one person, I think there's a lot of people who want to understand, you know, what the CQ actually stands for. And then one person that, that asked, is Quebec closer to trying to leave Canada with this election? Mm. No, I don't think they are. I honestly don't. I think the opposite. I think that he has provided a safe space for a lot of Quebecers who have grievances with the rest of Canada and the federal government, an outlet. They can fight for what they think is important to them. They can vote for, you know, more protection for the French language and the culture. And I'm not saying that a lot of what he's doing is necessarily promoting the protection of the French language. A lot of what he's doing is very superficial and just, you know, is able to push buttons that are very easy to be pushed. But when it comes down to funding for more education and and, and more uh, French acquisition courses and so forth, which is where we should be 
focusing on. I think he's been very lax in those areas. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's a way of not necessarily separating from Canada, but providing an outlet for a lot of people to say, we will consider Quebec first. Yeah, and we will be different. <laughs> and, and to do so in a way that is very safe because it's easy to vote for the CAQ, but to be able to say, well, we're splitting from Canada is a whole different ballgame, right? A lot of the debates have been in the last years about what does it mean to put Quebec first and like what does Quebec want and what does Quebec stand for? And another question that's out there, Is there anything crazier than Bill 21 coming down the pipe? This is obviously coming from a person that's not a fan of Bill 21, which right. is not surprising no. given that those questions are not coming from Quebecers. Let's make it clear. There are a lot of Quebecers yeah. that don't agree with Bill 21 either, you know. I mean, it's a legitimate question because... Legault and the CAQ have now received a mandate, you know, like their their slogan was continuons, you know, like let's continue. So continue to what? Where are we going? There are a lot of people that are not necessarily very pleased with the last four years and have deep objections to Bill 21, Bill 96, Bill 40, and so forth, that really did target minority, my, minority linguistic rights, cultural rights, religious rights. What does this majority mean? What's it a sign of? And what will it be interpreted as from this government? Is it a signal to go even harder and go even further, yeah. a lot of people might be worried about that as well. I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, I will say that François Legault inside Quebec always presents himself as the pragmatic guy and the moderate guy. Like that's very much his brand. That's very much his style. So for example, Bill 21 bans religious signs for essentially judges, police officers, and then teachers. And For a lot of people outside of Quebec, and as you mentioned, rightfully, for a lot of people inside Quebec, that's completely outrageous. Mm -hmm. However, he's always presenting that as a compromise, right? especially that uh, the, the, I guess, the earlier version of that bill that, that was called the so-called Charter of Quebec Values that was presented by the Parti Québécois back in 2013, wanted to ban religious signs for All public servants, including people who were just working an office job in some department. So the public service, right. basically. So so essentially, because he's presenting Bill 21 as a compromise, as, you know, the middle position, it makes it unlikely that he would then reopen that debate and be like, we want to go further. It's not impossible, but I'm just saying that's how he speaks. And the same thing for the way he's been presenting himself on immigration. He's been saying those egregious things that have made the rounds and I think have pierced the linguistic wall in terms of, you know, comparing immigration to... Source of violence and... Exactly. Yeah. Linking immigration to, to violence. And he's said that and apologized for it. Then say that increasing the number of immigrants in Quebec to more than 50,000 a year would be suicidal. Then on the next day, say that you know, he wants to be premier of all Quebecers. So right. he's been doing very confusing stuff. And at the same time, during the campaign, he's been also presenting himself as the middle ground guy on immigration because there's the Parti Québécois on his right on that issue who wanted to cap the number of immigrants to even a lower number than 50,000. So, so that's why he's tricky to figure out, I guess, inside the spectrum of, of Quebec politics. And I think that's something that's lost to a lot of observers who are, who are not in Quebec, who are not following uh, French media. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, it is fair. But I think he's someone who also speaks from both sides of his mouth because what happens is that, you know, like on the one hand, he's saying, you know, immigrants are a source of violence and a source of extremism and potentially cause problems and suicidal. But on the other hand, he's increased, you know, the number of temporary workers has skyrocketed, you know, in the last four years for a variety of reasons. Mainly the main one is we have 
historic labor shortages. We need people, whether, Mm -hmm. you know, we can, we can have these conversations and these debates, but the reality on the ground is that people are desperate for more people to come in. So on the one hand, he's saying these things that pacifies people and appeases the ones who don't necessarily want more immigration or fear it, and it validates to a certain extent. And this is why it's dangerous, because he validates these sentiments, right, of people who might be xenophobic and might be a little racist and might be little, I mean, it's like being a little pregnant, but, um, you you know, like, um, he validates these sentiments, which is deeply dangerous because you expect your government to set the tone when it comes to these issues. And on the other hand, he he's allowed all of these temporary workers that are coming in who are in a very vulnerable position because when you are a temporary worker, you're without a lot of rights and a lot of access to resources that can help you if you're being uh, exploited. Including resources to learn the French language, which is ironic, Mm, right? So I wanted to insist on that because it's like there's more temporary workers who are coming in Quebec because the immigration cap is so low Mm -hmm. uh, on on professional immigrants. And that means that there's more workers now working in Quebec who just don't have access to basic human rights, but also in daycare also is is an issue. And that that is an issue because of, you know, human rights, but it's also an issue because it limits the socialization of children who don't have status or permanent status in French also. So it's kind of like... contradicts the the CEQ zone like goals. Right. And I think it's also worth mentioning that there's a lot of there's a whole lot going on there. It's well. it's absolutely worth mentioning because it's a vicious cycle because uh, then what happens is because these numbers and these people are affecting the stats, right? And then language zealots will use them and say, oh, well, newcomers who are coming in are not speaking French quickly enough. Well, you're not giving them, you're not providing them with the resources. What do you want these people to do? You know, I've spoken to uh, asylum seekers and refugee people who are waiting to to, to obtain status and are on waiting lists for French courses. But at the same time, we have a government that is telling refugees, if you don't, you know, within six months, you will only be addressed in French. But the waiting lists are longer than six months. So there's a conundrum there, you know, like there's a real, I feel it's hypocritical in so many respects that he's saying what people want to hear. But the average person who's not following the government as closely, like you and I perhaps, because it's our job, don't know these things. So uh, for people who don't know Tula yet and who are listening to us, you just figured out that Tula is not the greatest fan of the CQ. (laughs) (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) Okay, next question. To what extent Quebec Solidaire uh, has been able to have an impact on major issues in Quebec? Are they mostly a protest vote or is there any chance of the left breaking through in future elections? (sighs) <sighs> Those are really interesting questions. Um, they are. They eh? are, yes. I mean, you know, following this election, I was curious, this 36 days that felt like an eternity to, in some, to some degree. I wanted it over. But I, I was watching closely and I, w- I was curious. I was curious to see whether, you know, Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois would like bridge the generational gap and whether he'd be able to appeal to a wider audience. I think in 2022, the, the progressive alternative to the Coalition Avenir Québec, it's more clear than ever, is Québec solidaire. 
I don't consider them a protest vote. No, I think they're a legitimate party with a legitimate platform that appeals, obviously, to a younger demographic, a more urban demographic. I did feel that they there were a couple of missteps, you know, because I don't know if they were as aware about the fact that there are a lot of allophones and anglophones in the Montreal area that actually do support Quebec Solidaire, even though they're a separatist party because of their progressive platform. And the fact that they chose to support Bill 96, which um, violated, you know, indigenous rights to be able to protect their own languages was a real sore spot for a lot of people. So I think they missed the boat on that one and actually probably lost some votes in the process. But they're a legitimate party. And I think they have in many ways, just like any effective opposition, it's one of the reasons why I feel like we need to reform our electoral, you know, this first past the post system is not working because we, we won't necessarily have real representation at the National Assembly right now. And we need more effective opposition, right? Challenging this government that has been for the past four years pretty much doing anything it wants without any real dissent or any real opposition because of the pandemic. And I believe they force public opinion to kind of look at things a little differently when it comes to certain issues, you know, like uh, social housing and, and the environment, for sure, making it front and center. For the longest time, liberal writings in Montreal were safe. Mm-hmm. But you had just a couple of writing on the east side of Montreal who were also safe Parti Québécois writing. So all the political campaigns tended to focus on basically the suburbs of Montreal and the Quebec City region where there's a lot of bellwether writing. And now it's changing because the Liberal Party has been weaker and the gains that Quebec Solidaire has been making have been, you know, in Montreal, but also in the urban center of Quebec City, Sherbrooke, mm -hmm. which also used to be liberal writing. So that forces both Quebec Solidaire and the liberals to pay more attention to the voters in Montreal. I think it's playing a role, for example, in how those parties have been talking more about issues like, you know, systemic racism or whether they've eventually landed on, on things like Bill 96, the language bills and the criticism they've made of it. The fact that Montreal is up for grab in a way changes not necessarily Legault's discourse, but definitely the path for a victory or for growth for at least two other parties in Quebec. Last question that I wanted to ask you, there are so many more. <laughs> We can only do so much. First of all, I want to acknowledge that there were a lot of questions that were asked that were basically a variation of the same question, which was basically, are Quebecers racist? Why is Francophone politics racist? Why are Quebecers so racist? <laughs> oh boy, okay. Et cetera, et cetera. And I feel like we've kind of like, answer that question indirectly throughout this conversation by making a lot of nuances. <laughs> right. In terms of like, does racism play a role in Quebec? Obviously, is there resistance to that as well in Quebec society? Obviously, just like in the rest of Canada. Mm. And I feel like that's been part of what we've been saying. But obviously, it plays a role politically as sure. well in the conversations we've been having. Right. I, I just wanted to clarify for people who are listening outside of, and I mean, I've said it within Quebec, and, and, and often when I write pieces that are critical of the government, I 
I, I get the routine, very lazy accusation that I'm Quebec bashing, which is very tiresome yeah. because I am a Quebecer and I have every yeah. right to criticize my government, you know, and the fact that I have an allophone name or I work in English doesn't take anything away from that. But I want to make it clear for the people who are listening outside of Quebec, no, Quebecers are not any more racist than anybody else. You know what I mean? Like uh, the rest of Canada has its issues with racism, just like we do. Did it play a role to a certain extent? It potentially did. But I think more than just blatant racism, I think what played a role more than anything else is this cultural and linguistic insecurity that plays out here in Quebec in many different ways and is a very easy button to push. And I Mm -hmm. think this government has done a really good job and other parties as well to hone in on that and to use it and to exploit it to the best of their abilities. Racism played a role, but at the same time, it's a small consolation to say, hey, we're just as racist as the rest of you. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, I hope that we should be aspiring to better. You know, we should all be aspiring to better. And I think we should all be aspiring to understand each other better. Yes to all of what you said, but... The way I've been, we've been answering this question throughout this conversation is also to look at it in more like pragmatic electoral ways. When we've been talking about the fact that there is now a pathway to a majority without Montreal, without like urban centers, it's essentially where most of the diversity in Quebec lives. That makes a difference in the political discourse. We've been saying that, but just like to contrast it with Ontario, the conservatives in Ontario could not have a pathway to a majority without diversity. And it makes a huge difference in the kind of politics that a person like Doug Ford has been putting forward and the kind of politics that even during the conservative leadership race when he was around, like the kind of conservatism that Patrick Brown has been seeing forward. I'm not saying that these are not also problematic people in, in some ways. I'm just saying that you won't have the same discourse, the political discourse is shaped in Ontario's, to take that example, by the kind of like coalitions that those government are made of or the kind of, you know, the fact that there's a lot of cultural communities in Ontario that vote conservative makes it electorally, just pragmatically, strategically more unlikely that you're going to get certain kind of discourse put forward explicitly by a person trying to win power. Mm, Yeah. The way that the electoral map is made up in, in Quebec, if you can do immigrant bashing and Montreal bashing and have a very, very strong majority at the National Assembly. It's changing the incentives to put forward a certain kind of discourse. The buttons that push politicians are are just different. They're set in a different way. And the consequences in terms of actual inequalities on the ground can be as real or sometimes even worse. But it just plays out differently. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash Once again, it's betterhelp.com 
slash Canada Land. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So Tula, as you know, on this show, we duly note things. What is it you wanted to duly note this week? I read an interesting piece by Seema Reza, who's a writer and a novelist, uh, essay writer on lithub.com, Literary Hub. And I thought it was a really interesting piece. The title is On the Joy of Being Completely Alone. And it obviously grabbed my attention. And she talks about how she invented a game called Apartment when she was young. And she would devise this life where she was alone and she was able to be creative and do her own thing. And then she describes how you know, she entered a relationship and she became a mom and she describes living with someone. And then when the relationship was dissolving, how she rediscovered the joy of being alone and being creative. Hmm. First of all, I just wanted to read a very short excerpt. To live with other people is to be responsible for protecting them from your moods, which I thought was really interesting as a phrase. Hmm. And she talks about basically the joy of being able to be creative and to be as she is with no expectations and and living a life in which I was not responsible for anyone else's experience of the world. Which is interesting Very. because it's true. And also because I feel like some of us have had an overload of that <laughs> uh, during the pandemic. True. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and then maybe we've been deconfined for uh, long enough to kind of like be like, oh, yeah, there were some parts of that that, that, that slowing down that wasn't that bad. Uh, well, I like it. I like I, I spend a yeah. lot of time, you know, as a freelance writer on my own. So I like it and I'm social, but I also love my solitude. So I get it. Yeah, no, me too. I'm the same. Duly noted, Tula. What caught your eye and uh, you'd like to talk about? I just wanted to duly note a news in Canadian media. It is that Evan Solomon is leaving CTV News mm -hmm. and he's been the host of Powerplay for years now. And I just wanted to mention, you know, I've collaborated with even on that show uh, a number of times over the last years. And a little bit like Lisa Laflamme, I've yet to hear bad things about even Solomon. Like he's really a person that's really well-beloved in the industry. He's leaving to take over a publisher's role in a New York City-based media company called G0. So I guess it's a goodbye and a good luck <laughs> to even for now. He's going to be staying on at CTV as a special correspondent. It's interesting as well in the context of the departure of Lisa Laflamme, 
from CTV as well. So essentially two CTV stars leaving in in just a couple of months. I think it's worth just mentioning at the very least. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, duly noted, Emily. So Sida, you had the second thing you wanted to duly note. I read something that I thought was pretty interesting in The Guardian about how car culture colonized our thinking and our language. And I thought it was really interesting because it kind of explores how we've gotten used to thinking about traffic and about our space, our public space from a driver's perspective, right? So like when we talk about how we blocked traffic on a street for an event or a sports event or whatever, we always say it's closed to traffic. But mm. what does that mean? You know, for whom? Because now all of a sudden the street is open to people. So um, just foot traffic, essentially. Right, right, exactly. It quotes quite a bit from Roland Kager, who is a data analyst and a transport researcher. And and he basically delves into the way that we talk about traffic and about cars makes it seem like they're more important than they really are. We allocate more importance to them than we really should. I think it's a language that journalists uh, tend to use without like even thinking about it. Absolutely. The idea that when, uh, for example, we, uh, and we've been doing that a lot in Montreal, removing some space for cars and adding space for bikes and then saying right. we're removing lanes while we're not mm-hmm. removing lanes. We're just changing who gets to access the lanes. Duly noted, Tula. Because we did this amazing job of public general education in Quebec in the first segment, uh, we didn't do as much media criticism, and now we're going to get in the midst of it. We wanted to talk about the rumors that have been circulating in the last months. I feel like it's an ongoing story uh, that the CBC is considering dropping objectivity from its journalistic standards. It's interesting because there is some media attention to that essentially in French because Radio-Canada is very different and there is a very different debate around what objectivity means in journalism that's happening in French. Essentially, it's very hard to even open up that conversation in French. And then it's been happening in national polls because the national post often likes to also publish stuff that criticizes the CBC. So it's not Unusual or unexpected that criticism of that is coming from those two segments of Canadian media. Last week, La Presse published an article coming from François Cardinal, who's part of the editorial team of La Presse, called Attention Pente Glissante, which means caution, slippery slope. And essentially commenting on those rumors that maybe the CBC wanted to open up a conversation about objectivity and essentially... François Cardinal immediately criticizes the idea that some journalists could talk about their own humanity or just share their personal perspective grounded in personal experience and that still be part of journalism. And he essentially says right away that this would only apply to what he calls minority journalism and that basically those who are white would not have that freedom, I guess is what he's saying. He's also asking if Francophone journalists at the CBC will be allowed to speak on language issues. So he has a lot of questions and obviously a lot of skepticism about Mm -hmm. what's going on. How did you, I mean, react to that piece and just that debate in general? I can only represent myself, but uh, as a journalist and as an opinion columnist, I've I've had, you know, and I've written on it uh, quite a bit. I even wrote a piece actually for La Trente 
2020, which is the magazine for Quebec Journalism Association, about the need to have a conversation on this. I feel that often it's a conversation that's weaponized against journalists of color and minorities. And, and what people don't seem to understand sometimes or realize, you know, is that the mainstream, what it considers objective truth is often decided upon by like exclusively a white newsroom, predominantly mostly white bosses. The norms of objectivity in journalism do change, you know, sometimes you, you can have these conversations. And I don't think this whole notion of a slippery slope. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand this knee-jerk reaction against these these conversations. I do believe that advocacy and journalism can coexist. And I believe that proximity to a subject that you're covering isn't a liability. To me, it's an asset. The issue, I guess, of objectivity that people who are trying to open up what it means and, and that conversation always point out to what you just said, basically, is that and people who are in the majority have historically controlled newsroom are also not objective. It's just that because they used to be all of them not objective in the same way, <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily see their own biases uh, exactly. for what they are. It's interesting that in the La Presse editorial I just mentioned, they also say that in La Presse's own uh, journalistic norm, there is no mention of objectivity. So it's not that they're necessarily defending the notion. They're just saying that, and I'm quoting, they mostly talk in that guide about journalism needing to be rigorous and focus on a search for truth and equity in the treatment of information and honesty. But what does that imply? Well, okay, so <laughs> there is... Yes, but I'm saying that essentially the word the word itself is not in all guidelines. norms or guidelines. Exactly. Sure. exactly. So basically it's interesting because François Cardinal says essentially that objectivity needs to remain under the guidelines. And at the same time, he's saying that you don't need to have the word objectivity to have guidelines that he can get behind because of his own guidelines. So I just wanted to point that out. I just also wanted to bring to your attention to this other National Post article by Tristan Hopper that was published on September 29. And Tristan Hopper based his article on that La Presse editorial we just mentioned to write about how CBC is reportedly considering dropping an age-old requirement for its reporters to be objective, at least for those from a visible minority group who reports on it in a way that's unsympathetic. And then there was an editor's note that was added to the article and they changed the title in the end because that article was written based on what François Garcinal has written in La Presse without actually asking mm -hmm. CBC for comment. Which is... A little funny. Exactly. The irony was pointed mm, uh, by yep. the CBC in its reaction to the article. Ironic because it's a new story about journalistic standards, uh, as the <laughs> editor's note uh, mentions. But essentially, CBC is looking at reinterpreting their journalistic principles through the lens of inclusion, but they have no intention, and I'm quoting, of rescinding the objectivity standard is what's clarified then in the article. And I think it's that nuance that's making a lot of people mind bend backward and that it's creating a lot of fear because when CBC says that, first of all, there are all the rumors that keep on persisting on the fact that they want to review their actual journalistic standards. And then even if it's about reinterpreting the journalistic principles through the lens of inclusion, a lot of people are not clear 
on what that means. And they have a lot of questions. Therefore, they just start panicking, essentially. A lot of people feel like if we're going to open the door to have people talk about their personal experiences while also talking about, you know, valuing things like impartiality. I think a lot of people have a hard time picturing what it actually means. Therefore, mm-hmm. the panic right uh, that that in- immediately ensues i think there's a confusion you know overall sometimes like it, it doesn't mean that just because you're acknowledging that people have their own perspective and and have uh, come from a different viewpoint it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you know journalists who are on the ground reporting on facts and reporting on events are going to simultaneously be publishing you know a hardcore opinion pieces talking about how they feel about it but i, I also think one doesn't cancel out the other you know this notion of that you can acknowledge that you have a specific viewpoint and at the same time you can be an impartial and objective journalist. They're not contradictions in my mind at all. And it allows for people's humanity to to, to kind of be acknowledged, you know. And I, I think these conversations are taking place right now because the landscape is changing, because more journalists from diverse backgrounds are entering the field than before. It used to be like predominantly a very white, uh, very privileged, right, back in the day. I feel like this assumption, you know, that journalistic standards of fairness and balance can't coexist with a specific viewpoint is is nonsense to me. The last thing I wanted to bring to your attention that came out in Le Devoir, So as I was saying earlier, it's very much a National Post, Frankville Media thing. There was also a report that we haven't found elsewhere than in Le Devoir, but an article that mentions that there was an invitation to march on uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day that created uh, a malaise at Mm. CBC, Radio-Canada, and Ottawa, you know, essentially basically inviting uh, the employee to participate in the gathering that was happening last Thursday in Ottawa. Le Deval asked Catherine Tate some questions uh, as to her presence here, and she refused, I'm quoting the article, she refused to answer questions from Le Deval, stating that it was not a demonstration, and and basically she was on her lunch hour, so on her personal time, and so the article once again brings up the the issue of impartiality and what Mm. it's a fundamental principles of of the norms and and practices at Radio-Canada, so Once again, there seems to be an issue there. And I guess the two sides of the arguments is that a lot of people would say that, you know, supporting Indigenous rights is not supposed to be a political statement. It's supposed to be just a basic thing. And then other people are like, yeah, but if you can't, essentially, if you can't support Indigenous rights, is this a protest or is this, is this just a gathering? Is it a vigil? Right. Should it be seen as a vigil rather than as a march? Like nobody would, I think, bash uh, journalists for, for participating in a Remembrance Day gathering. So mm-hmm. is the Truth and Reconciliation Day more akin to the Remembrance Day gathering, I guess, is what a lot of people are left wondering about when they make slippery slope arguments. That's Shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I'm Emily Nicola, and you can email me at emily at canadaland.com or you can also email jesse at jesse at canadaland.com. He says he reads everything you send. Where can people find you, Tula? Well, I'm usually on Twitter. I think that's the easiest way to find me at Tula Sake on Twitter. I write a weekly column for Cult Montreal and I just wrote a book that has been released and I've been doing a lot of promo for that called We the Others, 
on allophones uh, in Quebec and immigrants and belonging in Canada. Go check out the book, guys. This episode was produced by Aviva Lessard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is André Prou. Team music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.